Let's turn to Jonah 1. He's one of your minor prophets, so... You're right. You have a task ahead of you in finding it. So anyone who uh, finds the number, just shout that out. 774. 774. Well done. You win. What do I win? Uh, you know your Bible well, so the... All right. All right, how are we doing? Good there? All right, flipping, flipping. All right. Oh, Casey still hasn't found it. Come on. <laughs> All right. All right, well, I'm looking at the first three verses. Uh, this is just an intro. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And pray with me. Father, we ask that your word would not return to you void. We ask that our hearts would be softened and open to hear from your spirit through your word. Father, would we come to see Christ better? Would we come to love him more? Would we come to love his grace and his mercy? Father, use your word that you may be honored and glorified, we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so let's jump in by talking about the difficulty of Jonah's calling. So, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. All right, so if we're going to understand what Jonah is actually running from, we need to understand what, how did Jonah hear this message? What would he have heard when God gave him this calling? Well, first of all, see the word arise. So Jonah can't just sit in his living room on his couch in his pajamas. No, you have to actually... He just has to change his, to change his life. His life is going to change because of this calling. And he is called to go to, of all places, uh, Nineveh. This is 300 miles away. He's going to have to trek through foreign deserts and foreign nations to arrive at a foreign city. He's been taken out of his comfort zone. He doesn't get to be the same person he was before. So he's traveling. Here's Israel. He's traveling up here to Nineveh. I just want to start out by saying this is an uncomfortable calling. The callings of God tend to be like that. They take you out of your comfort zone. And he is taken out of his comfort zone. He is called to a foreign nation. All right. Now, Nineveh. Nineveh, this great city. What would have come to mind when Jonah thought of Nineveh? Well, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So he would have thought of Assyria, and when you think of Assyria, you think of brutal military. You think of violence. So Assyria, they're, uh, they're kind of up north, just above Israel, and they're the first to discover iron weapons, and iron is, is there, so they become this kind of brutal 
military force. <coughs> and during this time, Assyria is gathering power, and they're starting to wipe people out. And their method is to go to cities, to build siege towers, to starve out the people, and kill everyone in the city. That was their strategy, with, uh, with no pity, no grace, no, no mercy. To the extent that people actually stopped battling, they just would let Assyrians come in, they would give up, and they'd be exiled, they'd be taken out. Deported, other people would be brought in. All right, so that is Assyria. Extremely brutal, violent people. That is who Jonah is told to go to. All right, this is not a safe calling. This is a dangerous calling. This is an unsafe calling. It's, this is a scary, scary calling. All right. And what was he supposed to bring to these people? Look at verse 1 again. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So he's going to this violent, brutal nation and telling them that judgment is coming upon them. All right, so it's, uh, it, this is an uncomfortable, unsafe, unwanted message. This is brutal. I'm sure the Ninevites are not going to be terribly excited to hear that, that God's wrath is going to come upon them. And for a violent nation to respond well to that is, is probably unlikely. All right. So it's unwelcome to the Ninevites themselves, but it's unwelcome in a different sense. This would have been an unwelcome calling to all of Israel. Because most of the time, God kind of focused on Israel. And Israel kind of got to the point where God is our God and he fights for us. And so they saw, they saw the other nations as the enemy. And what should happen to the enemy? The enemy should be wiped out. But this is God actually extending his grace to a foreign nation. Giving them an opportunity to repent. Telling them that this vengeance is coming, that the judgment is coming. And so Jonah is actually a messenger of God's grace and God's mercy. And that's, that's not okay for Israel. They don't like that. This is going to the enemy and, and protecting them. Israel wouldn't have liked that. Jonah probably wouldn't have liked it. And this is coming at a cost to Israel. Grace always comes at a cost. And so this would have been an unwelcome calling for Nineveh, for Israel, for Jonah himself. So I want us just to, to understand that, just because I think we can be too brutal on Jonah, Jonah at first. But we have to understand, like, this is a, a really hard calling. And we should have some sympathy because we as Christians are given hard callings. When Jesus calls us, he says, he bids us to come and die. He, he basically tells us that our life is no longer our own. And he tells us that we are to sacrifice all of our loves and surrender those loves to a love for God and a love for other people. He tells us that we are now on mission, that our life is not our own, so that we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. <coughs> he tells us to, to forsake 
all of our idols, all the things that, that we think we need and give them up to God. All right, we have, we have an, an uncomfortable calling of ourselves. We have a, an unsafe calling in a sense that we are called to, to put ourselves in a place where we could be persecuted, where we could be judged, where we could be hated by people who don't know Christ. And finally, we have a, an unwanted calling in a lot of senses. We are those who are called to, to proclaim Christ, which is a great message. That's the best message there is, but people don't want to hear it. They don't want to know that, that they stand under judgment, even if they know that Christ is there to save them. And oftentimes it's, it's unwanted by, by the church itself. I think sometimes we think, well, Christianity would be such a great religion if we didn't have to do that evangelism stuff have to feel guilty about that all the time and we don't do it very well. But that is our calling. <coughs> Alright, so we can connect with Jonah. We can, we can connect with him on the fact that, that we have these difficult callings. But what we don't want to connect with is Jonah's absurd reaction to his calling. So look, look at what Jonah decides to do. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. It's a hard word to say. From the presence of the Lord. To flee from the presence of the Lord. Now ironically, Jonah does arise. He rises up and he rises to flee. To flee, namely, from the presence of the Lord. He's fleeing from God. He hears his calling and he decides, well, I just, maybe I can outrun this God that expects so much of me. Now, this is absurd on a number of levels. A number of levels. First of all, we know we have an omnipresent God. He is everywhere. He said that, that the evil of the Ninevites was before him. Clearly, like other nations, other places around his radar. And so there's a foolishness here. A goofiness to try to run away from God. I think that that challenges us by the fact that... You cannot escape the commandments of God. That we can uh, kind of throw a temper tantrum about them, but we still have to do them. And that there is no other choice. That God is God. And that everyone will be held accountable to follow him. Now that is not why we obey, because we just uh, we have no other choice. But that is the underground reality that we all are accountable to God. Um, we're accountable to him. And he, he gets uh, the final say. Alright, so it's absurd to try to run away. It is absurd to try to run away. But I don't think that's kind of the primary absurdity here. To run away from the presence of God, what does that mean in a, in a biblical sense? What is the presence of God? In the Bible, the presence of God is the supreme blessing of the, the whole cosmos, the whole universe. That the presence of God is the greatest blessing there is. That David, when he speaks about the presence of God, he says, what does he say? One thing I ask, that I gaze upon your beauty. That that is his primary desire, is to just 
be in the presence of God and look at him, that then he will be totally content. He says that the right hand of God is, is joy and pleasure forevermore. Joy and pleasure forevermore. What more could you ask than to be in the presence of that kind of God? And in the same token, if, if being in the presence of God is the greatest thing that you can experience, then the greatest, I guess, punishment is to, to be kept away from the presence of the Lord. That when Adam and Eve rebel, what happens to them? They, they, they die. They die a spiritual death. Of, they're separated from God. They're cast from his presence. That is the worst of punishments, as God is, is the greatest thing, the greatest person. And so what is Jonah choosing here? His absurd reaction is, I'm going to abandon the greatest joy that there is and flee from that joy. I'm basically exiling, he's exiling himself. He's destroying himself. He's committing spiritual suicide in a sense. That is what he's doing in fleeing from God just so that he can be disobedient. So that he doesn't have to keep this calling. This is crazy. This is absurd. But the reality is that that, that is what is happening every time we sin. Every time we disobey, that's the choice we're making. That our sin, it, it cuts at our relationship with God. It cuts at our, our fellowship with him. And we are abandoning the glory of a relationship with him and fellowship with him, being in the presence of God and choosing to, to exile ourselves, to, to throw ourselves away from that. All right. We're killing the blessing that God would have for us. So in that sense, we, we are much like Jonah. We, we choose to do that. But there's another sense in which this is, this is crazy. Uh, continuing with verse, uh, verse 3. Jonah goes down to, uh, went down to the docks to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So once again, the presence of the Lord is coming up. And what is, what is Jonah deciding to do? So here's, here's Israel. There's Nineveh. He decides to go to Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain, which is 1,500 miles the opposite direction. 1,500 miles. And to get there, it's just, just you know, like, that's like probably the, the furthest place away that is ever listed in the Bible. So they don't know like a ton of geography. He, he finds the place that is furthest away. And he has to get there by boat. Now, that might not really stand out to us, but Israelites, they, they weren't seafaring people. These were land people. These are, these are farmers and these are sheep herders. And the whole Bible is actually built around that premise, is that like land is good, the sea is bad. Because it's, it's the land, the land is a place of life and fruit and stability. You can build a house on land. And the sea, the sea is just this chaotic, uh, destructive 
dangerous mess. And so holistically, through the Bible, there's this kind of negative motif about the sea. So that when judgment comes, like Noah and the flood, there's no more land the water gets to take over. That's why in the new heavens and new earth, it talks about how there won't be a sea anymore. Because all that chaos, all that craziness will be gone. And it will be only places where, where we can live in peace and in life. And so for Jonah to say, you know what, I'm going I'm to go 1,500 miles by boat. That's another sense in which he's kind of casting himself into spiritual death. He's throwing himself in the sin and the chaos. And just like every sin is a, is a casting off of the presence of God, every sin, every disobedience is, is throwing ourselves into that chaotic sea. It is resigning ourselves to the chaos. Basically choosing to, to abandon the, the place of heaven and go to the place of hell. Now that is, that is kind of bleak, but... That is, that is what he's doing. That is Jonah's decision so that he can hold on to his independence, his disobedience. He can do what he wants to do. So that makes us beg the question, okay, uh, why would Jonah have done it? Why was it worth it for him? It was coming at quite a cost to disobey the Lord. A heavy cost. So we can speculate. We can speculate. Let's speculate first. Then I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, he could have been just scared. He could have been scared. Understandably so. The Syrians were scary people. Maybe he didn't want to go and he was scared to go. But that doesn't super fit because going 1,500 miles on a boat, that's equally scary. Probably scarier to an Israelite than, than to us. But like that doesn't get around the whole thing of, of death or, or fear of, of punishment. All right, maybe it's a, it was just, just too difficult to go to Nineveh. It was just a hassle. But to go to Tarshish was an equal hassle. Just as much planning, just as much danger, just as much uncertainty. He'd still be living in a foreign nation, one even further away from the one he was used to. All right, so it's not those things. And I think we, we expect that that's why we disobey. It's because we're, we're scared of the call, something like that. But no, it's, a, it's an interesting reason, a surprising reason that motivates Jonah. Uh, he tells us later in the chapter what he says to God. The reason is that Jonah hates God's grace. That's the reason. He doesn't like God's grace and mercy. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. This is uh, after the Lord has saved Nineveh. I've given away the ending there. Uh, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. He's shaking his fist at God saying, this is, what I, this is what I knew you'd do. I knew you would save them. And I, I didn't want you to save them. I wanted you to destroy them. And you didn't do it. 
And I don't like the fact that you give all these people what they don't deserve. He doesn't like grace. And Jonah fled so that he would not have to embrace the grace of God. He wouldn't have to offer it to others. Now, that's a... He chooses, he chooses death so that he doesn't have to embrace grace. Now, that is what... Each one of us is faced with that decision. It is death or grace. And why, why did Jonah hate grace so much? Well... First of all, he didn't like giving it to other people. He didn't want it for his enemies. Because it would come at a cost. We said that grace always has a cost. I haven't, I don't know how I define grace yet. Grace is a free gift. The free gift of payment for sins. It's a free gift of anything. Things you don't deserve. And so for Assyria to be forgiven, they didn't deserve that. And it would cost Israel later on. 50, 60 years later, Israel, uh, Assyria would come back and destroy Israel because God was merciful. It actually cost Israel dearly. So Jonah doesn't want to have to pay the price for this. But even more, it seems that as we read the story, Jonah didn't like grace for himself either. He never seems to embrace it. When he gets on the ship and the storm comes, he doesn't repent. He basically says, uh, you know what, I realize I messed up. You should probably just throw me overboard and I'll, I'll die. That's his solution to his sin. And God, just, just take me now. I, I realize I messed up. And then God forces grace upon him. And is he excited about it? No. He, he never expresses much thanks or worship or joy over it. He just goes back to being resentful. So I'd say that Jonah hated grace because he didn't really understand it. He never embraced it. It was never his. And we, we are in danger of that. We can be in danger of that. So I'm going to ask us the sobering question, do you hate grace? Now you're probably like, well, no, 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 we're, we're Christians. We're Christians. Like, of course, we, we love grace. But, all right, like, bear with me. What does it really mean to love grace? If you love grace, you love offering grace to other people. And that's hard. What does offering grace to other people look like? Uh, let's take forgiveness. When someone clearly and deliberately sins against you, you're called to forgive them. Not punish them for it, not get restitution, just forgiveness. Grace is being loving and kind and accepting and sacrificial towards the most annoying, most sinful, most rotten people in your life. Not because they deserve it, because they don't deserve it. That's what offering grace to people looks like. Loving your enemies. Giving yourself for them. What else does grace look like? I lost my spot. <laughs> uh, grace looks like just 
I think we, we would call it the, we use this phrase in Christian lingo is like, well, no, you can't, you don't want to be a doormat. Christians aren't doormats. There's a sense in which grace, grace demands that we are in some sense a doormat. That Jesus was walked all over. Now, I recognize that that's not a holistic picture. But offering people grace is, is offering us Offering them t ourselves to them and expecting nothing in return. Some would call that being used. I think Christ would call that just sacrificing for people. And recognizing that, no, you're not going to get anything in this world. You're looking to your, your heavenly father to repay you. That is offering grace. And I think oftentimes we don't like that. Do we love that? Would we rather see grace offered than getting what we want? Probably not. And if that is our desire, we wrestle a lot with it. Or maybe we, we don't love grace. We, we have struggles with it because it just doesn't feel like it fits us. I know every week we talk about how we're sinful and, and God has shown immense grace to us, infinite grace. We don't deserve anything, and yet we've been given everything. But I think that can start to ring hollow after a while. Or it can just sound boring, which is kind of mild hatred and disgust. And this grace thing, we, we start to, to resent it a little bit. Maybe think that, well, I, don't, I just don't feel that bad. Maybe I deserve something. Like... And we start to get this bitterness towards grace. Now I want us to, to look at our hearts and ask our question, like, why might we resent grace? Why might we resent the fact that God is merciful, that God gives us more than we deserve? And gives everyone more than they deserve. Alright, first of all, maybe you're one of those good people. If you think you're a good person, then grace isn't, isn't a good message to you. Because if you're a good person, like you're sitting at the top and you're ready to win this religious game and then God levels the playing field and says, oh no, everyone loses and everyone wins. If you really think that you, you deserve to win, then you're not going to like grace. Because they're getting a free pass and you're not. Or they're getting blessings that they don't deserve when you deserve them. Now I think of this like, uh, take, take yourself back to your school days. Back to your school days. Imagine you've studied for a big test. You studied for a big test. The teacher gives you this big test. And you feel pretty good about it. You, you, you did the work. You're probably going to, yeah, you probably did pretty well. And then your teacher does that thing you know what, I'm going to be so nice, give everyone an A. <laughs> Sometimes teachers do that. I've had them a couple times. Now, are you excited? No, you're resentful. Because you get back your paper and you got an A anyway. Everyone else just gets to freeload. And so grace, you don't, you don't love grace, you resent grace. But for those people who have big whopping F's on that test, they're super stoked about grace. They get it, they like it, they love it. 
They want more of it. All right? <laughs> so the question is, like, spiritually, do you have A's or F's? Now, I know intellectually and actually you know that, most of you know that you have F's. No one's getting any awards for their, their performance here. But in your heart of your hearts, do, do you know that? Do you believe that? Or are you still fighting with, with ranking everyone and telling yourself that, no, maybe, I, maybe I, I'm probably I'm better than most people? And that's where, if you think you're better than, than anyone holistically, I mean anyone, we always, you probably have that person in your mind who's like, well, no, but like that person's really evil and terrible. Like, no, like that's equal playing field, equal playing field. Everyone is on the same plane. We've all failed. We should be excited about grace because we all have F's. We all have F's and God gives us all A's. All right? If any of you guys think you have D's or C's or B's, you, you are wrong. And that's going to kill your love for grace. It's going to kill your love for what Jesus has done. All right, so those are the good guys. All right, good people. Uh, another reason you might hate grace is because it... It puts you in a hard position with God. Because if you absolutely deserve nothing, then God can ask you to do anything. And you don't get any say in it because your life is not your own. He bought your life. You didn't work for your life. And so he can ask you to do anything. That's where we're, we are not God's employees. So the more he asks you to do, the more he has to pay you or reward you or give you more happy lives. No, we are bought with a price. And we don't deserve to have anything. And so he can ask us to do anything. And that's a hard position to be in, with God in. Because we have no bargaining chips. We don't get to debate things with God. And that's scary. Now, the consolation is that God wants good for us more than we do. And he knows how to give it to us. And when he tells us to do certain things that we think we don't want, it's actually for our joy and our satisfaction and for our true contentment, for our spiritual good. But grace leaves it up to God. And that's very scary. And so oftentimes we resent grace because we want to be in control. Which I think combining those two, you're only going to love grace if, if you love the fact that God has been gracious to you. And you recognize that God has been gracious to you. And that that is the greatest treasure that you have is that Christ gave you the gift of grace. That's, that's the only way it's going to work. That you love grace and you just want everyone to have it. And you love grace so much that you're going to put grace first. And that's going to be your priority. Not yourself, but grace. That's kind of the, the ultimate goal. Is that we'd be so excited we have grace that we, we can actually convince people that they want it. If we're, if we're just... 
If we're resentful Christians who make it clear that we don't really want grace and we're kind of upset about this whole Christianity thing, no one else is going to want it either. Like, oh, uh, I'm good. You, you don't even want it. Like, uh, <laughs> it is the greatest gift. And if we don't know that in the heart of our, like, heart of our hearts, which none of us fully do, then we're, we're going to be terrible evangelists because we have nothing good to give them. All right. All right, so now we're shifting a bit, shifting. What do we do with this? This is the point of the sermon where it could get very legalistic and say, Jonah was bad, don't be Jonah. <laughs> and then leave it at that and like, now go and go in peace and joy. No. All right, you, that's where, that's where, if you're, if you're doing that, you're reading your Bible wrong. That is a bad reading of the Bible. Because you and Jonah are not on equal levels in this, this book. And it's really natural to connect with Jonah. And we see the parallels and we're like, oh, I've had my Jonah moments. And, you know, I've, I've rebelled and, like, God's brought me back. All right, that's, that's good. But that's not actually how you're supposed to read the book. That Jonah is not parallel to you. Jonah is parallel to Jesus. Jonah is parallel to Jesus. Who are you in the story? Who are you in the story? The Ninevites. You're a Ninevite, all right? You are totally lost and depraved, and you need someone to come rescue you. All right, you guys, you're just chilling. And we, we like to read the Bible and be like, oh, it's all about me. No, it's all about Jesus. And like the big characters are like points to Jesus. We're, we are the, the people who need to be saved, not the people primarily who need to do the saving. And that's where, well, thank God that Jesus is not like Jonah. Not thank goodness, thank God, thank God for that, because he's not. That Jesus received a very difficult calling. And how did he respond? He responded with an absurd obedience. And he was motivated by a love for grace. He is the, he's the utter opposite of Jonah. So think of his calling. What was his calling? Okay. So he's, he's, he's God. And he has to come to earth. That's what Christmas is all about. We just, we're still celebrating it. Sorry. Um, <laughs> shouldn't be anymore, but maybe it's connecting. Um... That was, that was the, the coming to Nineveh. Jesus came to Nineveh, and it was, it was a much more difficult trip for Jesus than for, would have been for Jonah. And why did he? And he came, and his role was to be perfectly obedient, to perfectly love all of these people who are constantly hating on him and, and sabotaging him, trying to stone him, calling him a blasphemer. Like people who hated his guts. And his job was to love them, love us. And for all those people who hated him, he was supposed to let them kill him so that he could save them from their sins. That was his calling. And how did Jesus respond to that? Jesus was stoked to do that. He was ready to do that. And he did not run from God in that. 
Instead, in the presence of God, he, he walked with God through that difficult path. As a side note, there's, there's always going to be suffering. We can suffer with God in the presence of God, or can, we can suffer without him. I think Jesus models suffering in the presence of God and going through his mission in the power of God. And he did that willingly, he did that fully, he did that all in. That he kept obeying, he kept serving, he submitted to death on the cross. And when he rose again from the dead, when he got out of the, the belly of the whale, as it is, he was able to proclaim that grace that God had promised. And that's where what motivated Jesus, Jesus was motivated by a love for grace. That he went through all of these things. He endured his mission so that he might provide us the grace that we needed. He longed to have a relationship with us. To restore us back to the presence of God. So we could go to God and, and rejoice in him. Have that great blessing. Grace was the only way that that was going to happen because we were far too sinful to get it any other way. And in that, he glorified God. That God is glorified in his graciousness. Alright. So what do we do with that? You as, we, we as Ninevites, we receive that. We don't try to be second Jonas or second Jesuses. No, we, we hear the message and the message is grace. That Jesus came to proclaim the grace of God found in him. And so when we hear that message, we repent, we receive Jesus, and we rest upon him alone. And we rejoice in the fact that we have this grace. And tell each other how much we love this grace. And everything is about grace. Grace is then the, like the, the power for obedience. Alright, so let's take, take things that we are called to. Obedience. Keeping God's law. Why do we do that? So that we can experience the grace of relationship with God. Not so that he doesn't get mad at us. No, so that we have a deep and intimate fellowship with the joyous God of the universe. Alright, why do we read our Bible and pray? We all struggle with that. It's so that we can know the grace of God. We can be reminded of it in story after story after story. Reminded how gracious God is and just bask in it. That's our motivation for reading the Bible. And then we talk to God about how great it is. That's what prayer is. It's more than that, but it's also that. And finally, like, when we go on mission, we're told to evangelize. We do that because we love the grace of God. We love spreading it. We love talking about it because we're just so enamored with it. All right. That is our motivation. Live under grace. Right. So two, two ta uh, three, three, three take-home things. Three take-home things. I'm giving you homework. Homework. <laughs> Yay. All right. <laughs> I know I did. Right, that was some Garber kids. <laughs> All right. First off, uh, this series doesn't make any sense unless you're called to something. 
<coughs> and I'm not going to make sweeping generalizations about what you're called to, because God is probably calling you to something that I don't know about and that you probably do. So I want, I want you to think about this week, what is God calling you to? It might be a certain new obedience. It might be new discipline. It might be new evangelism. What is it? And you're going to probably don't know right off the bat. You're going to pray about it. You're going to read the scriptures. You're going to find out what that is. And to keep you accountable to that, I want you to tell one person what you come up with. Just one person. Tell them what you come up with. And then third, third, I want you to connect that calling to the grace of Jesus. So how is that calling? How is it motivated by grace? And how is it manifesting a love for the grace of God? Now, these are deep questions. Deep, deep questions. And you're gonna keep, we're going to keep wrestling through this as we go through Jonah. But this is how we, how we wrestle with, with our callings and how we imitate Christ and live in the power of the gospel. Right? So let, let's learn not to hate grace, but to love grace and to love nothing but Jesus because Jesus gives us this amazing grace.